Welcome to A Teaspoon of Healing, where we explore the pathways to wellness and vibrant living. Listen to personal stories of healing and interviews with experts. It's time to open a doorway to healing in your life through positive changes. Here is your host, Dawn Damari. Hi, I'm Dawn Damari, and you're listening to another episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. Today, My guest, David Krantz, is a health coach specializing in nutritional, genomics, epigenetics, and the endocannabinoid system. We're going to be talking about all these topics and much more, including how what you eat and your lifestyle can affect how your genes are expressed, and a lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, this is Goff, owner of Goff Tours, specializing in stand-up paddleboarding or surfing lessons. I even do snorkeling. You can reach me here. Orange County has what you're looking for. You can contact me via email at gofftours at gmail.com or mobile number is 949-338-5937, gofftours.com. Today, my guest is David Krantz, epigenetic coach. Hi, David. Hi, Don. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. And thank you for joining me on A Teaspoon of Healing. So I guess right off the bat, we'll ask, what is an epigenetic coach? Sure. So I take a look at health through the lens of epigenetics, which is really looking at how genes express themselves in response to different stimulus from the environment. So that could be anything from food to stress to sleep to supplements that you take, different toxins in the environment. And so it's really a broad holistic approach to health, but I'm looking at it through this very specific lens of genetic expression. Nice. So on epigenetics, how can we shift our genes so our destiny doesn't just lie in our genes? Just because a parent has a condition doesn't always mean you're going to get it. We can shift them with lifestyle factors and and other means. So what is like the first step somebody can do to address this if they have a, a genetic history in their family? Yeah, well, I think you hit it right on the head there that we're not necessarily bound by the destiny that might be a possibility in our genes, which was pretty much the predominant view until you know maybe 20, 20 years ago or so. And I think that that mentality is really just starting to take hold and really filter into mainstream consciousness. You know, I, I think that's it's really important to talk about because of the mentality and that mindset is so powerful in, first of all, giving yourself the capacity to realize that you can shift these things. You know, I think to, to answer your question there, what can someone do? You know, it really depends on what someone's predispositions are and how their body's wired and which practices, which foods, which lifestyle routines are going to be kind of matched up for them. Because one of the things that's really interesting when you look at someone's genome, you know, there's all this information out there on the internet. And people will get really caught up in, oh, I have this specific mutation and I have this specific thing that's like wrong with me. But when you kind of back up and zoom out, you know, evolution is really smart. The way we've evolved is really intelligent. And those things that we perceive as something that's bad right now, when you put those things in the right environment, 
people can thrive. And I'll give you an example. There's you know, this gene that's really popular on the internet and forums called MTHFR. And there's a lot of, I would say, scare tactics around it, making people think that there's something wrong with them. The version of this gene that people are worried about is actually cancer protective when it's in an environment that's very folate rich. So this has to do with folate, which comes from green vegetables and how your body processes that. And you know, if pe- when people are folate deficient, there can be a whole host of different health issues that come from it. But the research shows that when people are in the right environment and they're getting the right food, this actually becomes an advantage. So it's about kind of understanding how your body's wired, how you want to treat yourself in order to shift something that might be a disadvantage in one situation into an advantage in another. And it seems like it's not just food that can shift you. So how can your lifestyle factors like stress, your relationships, and your environment, how can that help shift some of your genes or some of the uh, shifted in your favor. Yeah. You know, the, the thing about epigenetics and this, this, you know, different gene expression is the body doesn't really pick and choose between all of these different things that it encounters. You know, it's going to treat stress that comes from fighting with your boss to stress from, you know, any other situation in the same way. So you can impact you know, say the same gene from a number of different angles and lifestyle factors like how much sleep you're getting or how much light you're exposed to. You can impact these things from so many different areas that what I really love to do is stack all those things on top of each other. And there's there's really no thing that the body doesn't take into account in terms of the way you're living your life. And this comes down to even emotions and the and your belief system. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a study done at UCLA 2015 to 16 that was looking at the way people perceived happiness. And they were looking at different gene expressions based on whether people predominantly derived their happiness from either hedonic means or eudaimonic means. And, and what that that is looking at is, are you generating happiness in your life from going out and partying and drinking with friends and just kind of pleasurable things? Or on the eudaimonic side, are you generating happiness from kind of living out your life's purpose and doing things that are meaningful to you? And what they found was that there is actually a different expression profile for people that were generating happiness from kind of these two different modes. And the profile of people that were eudaimonically happy, kind of living out their purpose and passion, was actually a more beneficial profile, less inflammation markers, that type of thing. So what you're doing with your time, even what you're doing with your life, the way that you're approaching your mentality is even going to have an impact on those things. So it's really looking at the whole system's approach and not discounting, you know, kind of any picture of the whole, um, the whole system there. Well, that's really fascinating. So the way you express your happiness, if it's going out and partying or if it's living your life's purpose, that can that can affect your gene expression. And so can many other things. So pretty much everything touches it. That is really fascinating. Yeah, pretty much everything touches it. I kind of look at epigenetics almost as this uh, hub with all these different spokes attached to it. You know, it's this interface that kind of collects all this information that the body's getting from all these different areas and sort of coagulates it, puts it together, synthesizes it into different, you know, health outcomes, basically. And speaking of health, there's another field, nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, and this is how your genes influence your nutritional requirements. And we've been hearing a little bit about that in the last couple of years. And people need different nutrition than others. They're finding this. And so... 
how can this impact your energy levels and your mood and your, your overall health? You know, what kind of nutrition you're using and how can you kind of figure out what's best for you? Yeah, I think this is so huge because we've seen so many different diet trends over the years. And I think this really evolved out of, you know, the kind of obsession in nutritional science that has sort of dissipated now. But the idea of finding the food pyramid, finding the one thing that is going to work for all humans. And I mean, that's just not, it's just not how it works. There are thousands and thousands of different genetic variations that are going to influence the way that you metabolize different nutrients, different fats and proteins and carbs and all of the vitamins and minerals. And so you can't necessarily say that what's going to work for one person is going to work for another person. This is what I do in my practice is really help people understand how they can leverage their own genetic information to, to learn this stuff. And it's what I coach people on, really kind of aligning with the right inputs, the right information, because you know when you kind of break it down, food is just another source of information for the body. We're really looking at, okay, what type of information can you put into the system that gives the right instructions to the way your body's set up? And so this is kind of where the genetic piece uh, kind of interacts with the epigenetic piece. So you know your, your genome, your DNA, that doesn't change, but the epigenetic response or the way those genes express is going to be different depending on what your genetic code is. You might have a gene variant, a different combination of nucleotides in your DNA. Those are the letters like A, T, C, and G. And the specific arrangement of them might cause you to say, metabolize saturated fat poorly or cause someone else to actually set, you know, metabolize it pretty well and transport it around the body and actually be able to break it down into energy well. For those two people, if they're eating a diet that has you know a good amount of saturated fat in it, one person epigenetically is going to have a poor response, they're going to turn on genes that you don't want on. And the person who metabolizes it well, they're going to turn on genes that actually work pretty well for them. So you kind of get this base understanding of what all these different variants do, which is a result of, I mean, over a hundred thousand studies on nutrigenomics. Now it's pretty amazing how much research has been done on this. You kind of compare that to what your genome looks like and you can get a pretty good feel for, you know, are you going to do better with something that looks more like a paleo approach or a keto approach, or maybe even a vegan or vegetarian approach for some people. And, you know, it really gives a lot of kind of insight into why some people are just huge proponents of a certain diet mm -hmm. type. And I mean, I, I imagine that you've seen that in your yes, practice, right? Yes, in my practice and also doing this podcast because I've had everyone from vegan to carnivore on here and then the in-betweens, the paleo, the keto. But a lot of people are very, you know, they're very loyal. They're passionate about their diet. People coming in for coaching, especially either people who are vegan or usually the other side, full on, you know, carnivore. Mm -hmm. Those are usually the hardest ones for me. But, you know, it works. For, it works for some people. It just doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. Do you ever find people that are really attached to one particular style mm -hmm. of diet and then yes. you know that that's not really working for them, but they don't want to look at that yet? Yes, definitely. And so how do you deal with that as a as a coach. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, having the genetics in front of people is pretty helpful because it actually right. gives you some objective way to look at and say, all right, well, you know, here's some reasons why this might not be the best thing for you. And, you know, that doesn't always con convince people, but it usually at least leads to some, some soft ways to get around it. You know, if someone's vegan mm -hmm. doing some supplementation that's specific, that could fill in some gaps. But yeah, you know, I, I think it's just kind of time for a new approach 
and a overall new way to start thinking about this stuff because I think that the the science is there and I think that there's you know the capacity for for people to really understand it it's just kind of getting out of the old mindset of you know my body's exactly like your body and you know, I I think we're we're close to it in a more mainstream way but it's it's these types of conversations I think that really kind of unlock it for people a little bit Yes, I hope so. And as far as the academy, the dietetic academy, I mean, I'm not a, a dietitian, but I'm wondering, you know, when will they look at it this way? They really still use the pyramid, the myplate, and it seems like there's physicians, there are physicians, functional medicine, you know, we have Mark Hyman, we have many of these doctors that are looking at nutrition, but getting the uh, nutritional community, when will they get on board with differences, you know, to not just look at the the pyramid, but that's a whole nother question. <laughs> yeah. It's actually, if you don't mind, yeah. I'm really curious just to get your opinion on it because sure. you've probably sure. looked more into the official credentials and that kind of thing than I have. I have. So I'm kind of curious in terms of the way that you've seen that world work. What do you think the biggest blocks to that are right now? Do you think it's just a lag in the research or more of like a vested interest in people not wanting to say they're wrong or I don't know. I'm curious. I think it's a, f- a few things. I think it's definitely people not wanting to say they're wrong. There's industry, there are industry influences and lobbying, but also it's the research. They want 10 years of peer-reviewed studies oftentimes to make any new, you know, nutritional claim or a change to my plate. And a lot of that, they're observational studies, self-reporting. You can't really do an experiment per se with with nutrition. So it's oftentimes it's their observational studies, but it really, they, they take many, many years. And then they'll say, okay, well, this is something that we could change. So I don't exactly know what it is, but it's just there's this hurdle of being able to be open to this. And I, I do see this. I do see this changing, I guess, just more research and more doctors and coaches, more coaches being certified and more doctors coming out you know, and speaking and writing books and educating people. Yeah, I, I really hope it does change in the mainstream soon because it's so valuable, you know. But yeah, I think that's good insight there. Not everybody should eat the same plate, you know, the same, for example, whole grains don't work for some people. They just don't do good on grains or legumes. And for a lot of people, they're fine. So it's just really hard to say. I think there's obvious things that every people are agreeing on, you know, trans fats, things like this. So let's hope that, that this, these new ways of looking at nutrition will also be embraced. So David, yeah. what about cooking oils and fats? How can the oils you use to cook with make a massive difference for your genotype? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And fats and oils, I think, are one of the biggest things to get right. And I work with a lot of people where that is the one thing that they really see a big shift from is when someone has been eating, you know, coconut oil or butter, you know, doing a more keto approach, and they find out that you know they have certain genes that really aren't well suited for that, and make the switch to say extra virgin olive oil, they really see a big difference. And I would say that, you know, for the average person right now that doesn't know their genotype, extra virgin olive oil is really probably the safest oil. It uh, really has the best genetic expression profile from it. Really tend to see good stuff from that for the for most people. In terms of cognitive decline, there's a gene that's been identified and there's a number of them that contribute, but there's a, a really important one called APOE. APOE. This one has been associated with higher incidence of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and heart disease with certain variants. 
And those particular variants are really susceptible to this when they're eating a diet that's high in saturated fat. It, it turns on genes that promote brain inflammation. The other big factor there is exercise. So people that aren't exercising and eating higher diets and saturated fat that carry these genes are at much higher risk for cognitive decline. The research would you know, suggest, though, that those people, when they eat a diet that's lower in saturated fat and exercise on a regular basis, their risk factors kind of come back to down to normal and normalize with the rest of the population. And so this is an example of being able to control your genetic expression with your lifestyle. And having the information really can give you you know, the insight into understanding, all right, these are the things that I should do. These are the things that I shouldn't do. You know, I, I think that also just in terms of a general population and, you know, regardless of whether you know your genotype or not, avoiding the oils that are high in omega-6s, which are going to be like vegetable oils, canola oils, a lot of the seed oils. And unfortunately, these are like the main things that get used in conventional restaurant cooking because they can really shift the inflammation profile of someone towards a pro-inflammatory state because of the omega-6 and 3 balance. And then when you look at someone's genes, some people really need to watch the omega-6s and some people tend to need more omega-3s depending on some genes that control enzymes that you can just kind of boost the requirements there. And I'll give you an example of, of myself. Before I had you know analyzed my own genes, I assumed that nuts were a really good option for me. And when I kind of started looking deeper into it, I had a gene variant that's actually associated with more inflammation and more weight gain from high omega-6 fat than the average person. And, you know, most nuts are going to be higher in omega-6. My other coaching friends, we call, kind of call this the anti-nut gene. And sure enough, when I really started to pay attention to it and notice my nut intake, I can eat like a small handful. But if I eat more than that, I really do notice that I'm kind of puffy and inflamed the next day. So it's, you know, really looking in deeper into what are healthy fats for you. You know, I think the the term healthy fat has become really popular lately, which is great because I think people were scared of fats for a really long time. But kind of the next layer to that is really understanding, okay, there's there's going to be fats that are healthy for certain people and not healthy for others. So just being open to that individuality and you know how it works with your body, I think is really important. Nice. Now I'm going to go back to epigenetics and something that's being talked about, artificial lighting and EMF overload. And a lot, we overlook that. I, I know I do when thinking about health and, and reconnecting with nature is, is way more important than, than we probably think. So can we talk, can you talk a little bit about this, about the our artificial environments, our EMF and how we can balance that with some time in nature? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that that is one of the big keys, too, from an epigenetic perspective. And, you know, again, when you kind of zoom out and take the big picture perspective, our bodies evolved on a planet where basically the only electromagnetic radiation, the only significant source we would get for millions of years was from the sun. So all of the life on Earth is exquisitely tuned to function optimally in the presence of this light spectrum. The Earth's atmosphere protects us from a lot of the uh, higher intensity spectrum, you know, things like gamma rays and x-rays and that type of thing. Most of those are filtered out. We're in this sort of unprecedented time now when we've filled up our environment with levels of electromagnetic radiation from, you know, cell phones, cell towers, Wi-Fi, all of that stuff, as well as artificial lighting that is operating at hundreds of thousands times higher than the, the natural environment. And 
you know, there's there's some pretty dissenting opinions on this, depending on who you talk to. But I think the the research that I've seen that is not necessarily funded by telecom companies. And I think this is one of those really important things to be aware of right now is that there's a lot of research that is coming out that is funded by people that have a vested interest in showing that this stuff is safe long-term. I think that being able to, A, limit your exposure to radiation from cell phones is important, but then also, like you said, reconnecting with nature and getting back into sunlight getting back into connecting with the earth is really helpful. There's not a ton of research money for this. Like this isn't just, this isn't something that, you know, like pharmaceutical companies are going to have money to spend on, but the small amounts of studies that have been done really support the idea that grounding, connecting your feet to the earth is beneficial for inflammation and getting healthy sun exposure is one of the most important things you can do. There was a, a study that came out of Sweden, 2016, that was a large meta-analysis of a much, it was like a 20,000 person long-term study over 20 years. And what they found was that sun exposure is correlated with lower all-cause mortality, that people that had more regular sun exposure were likely to live longer. And it's it's counter to the you know narrative that the sun is going to give you cancer. And what they did find is that there was a small increase in, in like minor skin cancers, but that the people that were exposed to the sun w- lived longer and that they were able to overcome those things. Whereas people that were hiding from the sun, those cancers were more significant and serious and actually more fatal. I think there's something to be said for intelligent and sensible sun exposure and you know not standing out in the middle of the day when it's at its most intense but really utilizing the frequencies of the sun to realign yourself with the way that we exist in nature and you know that that sounds like it's uh i don't know a little bit new age or or you know unfounded but when you really look at all of the effects that the sun has on our biochemistry it's profound i mean we are designed to be responsive to light. And I think one of the more well-researched areas at this point is what happens when you're constantly exposed to light that isn't natural and really looking at the blue light that's emitted from screens and cell phones and fluorescent lights. And there's really good evidence that these things create more reactive oxidant species or oxidants that can cause cellular damage both in the eye and then in other places in the body because that throws off all of our circadian timing clocks. The eye is basically the trigger for all of these timing mechanisms in our body that, you know, under totally natural circumstances would just be using the sun as a way for us to kind of assess what time of day it was and assess, okay, we need to release, um, you know, wake up and go hormones or let's go to sleep hormones like melatonin. And what blue light does, and they've shown is that it suppresses melatonin and will throw off the, these clocks. And if you imagine every single biochemical process in your body as having a time element to it, right? Like this isn't just about, you know, how much of something you have in your body. It's, it's when those things are created and released and how long those reactions take to happen. And so when you add the time element into it, you know, it becomes very important for to have these things synchronized correctly. And nearly every major disease at this point has been shown to have a circadian disruption element to it. There's some relationship for things being out of sync in the way that hormones or, or neurochemicals are firing in our bodies that lead to dysfunction. 
And so really trying to get ourselves back to, you know, getting the proper sunlight exposure, getting the proper light exposure, limiting artificial light exposure can help your body actually produce the right things at the right time. And, you know, it's kind of like if you imagine a symphony orchestra, in order for it to sound good, everyone kind of has to be on the same page following a conductor. And if one person is playing out of time, like it, it just throws the whole thing off. And if you kind of apply this metaphor to the human body, it's like that, you know, times a thousand every second. So really using light to help your body time itself, I, I think is super important. And And, you know, that's a whole, that's really where epigenetics kind of comes into play there because all of those, those processes are under tight epigenetic control and, um, you know, really is, uh, is happening on that level there. And it also ties into sleep, circadian rhythms. And how does that work? How do our our circadian epigenetics, how does that help us? I mean, how can we use that to, to fix our sleep habits or, you know, when we eat? And how we feel throughout the day. Yeah, absolutely. So what we call the circadian clock is it really comes down to these genes that were, you know, are called circadian genes. And they exist in almost every single cell in the body. Every single cell in the body, kind of before the rest of the, the gene sequence, there's these circadian genes that turn on and turn off other genes throughout the day. So, you know, we can look at epigenetics in a long term cycle, you know, something that is, you know, maybe happens once in your life and then influences events down the road for years to come, something like trauma that can really create these long term embedded epigenetic responses. But then we also have these shorter term epigenetic responses that cause your body to do things throughout throughout the day that you know is, is just a part of a natural cycle like going to sleep waking up digesting food and the, the three main inputs to the circadian clock that helps time them is light like we mentioned before movement and exercise and food food intake so you know ideally you want to get most of your food intake when it's light outside. And this has been shown again and again in different studies looking at better insulin response, lower chances of of obesity, better inflammation profiles when people are able to shorten their eating window. What that is really doing for the the large part, I mean, there's some metabolic effects, but it's, it's largely in training the circadian rhythm to be firing when you want it to. If you're inputting food into your body, your body says, okay, we should be awake right now and digesting it. If you eat, you know, late at night, it starts to throw off the clock a little bit. And that's one of the biggest challenges that, you know, I think a lot of people have is at eight or nine o'clock starting to get the sugar craving and wanting to reach for the cookies. And I think there's a lot of things that you can do with light actually to help kind of reinforce that getting better sunlight exposure during the day and working on, you know, dopamine levels and and that type of thing can, can impact that but exercise as well so like you know if you're on on the treadmill half an hour before you're trying to go to bed that's also gonna throw off your clock a little bit because ideally you want to have distinct i'm awake cycles i'm eating i'm exercising i'm getting exposed to light and then a distinct dark cycle at night when you're limiting your light exposure especially reducing blue light exposure ideally sleeping in total darkness and also you know giving your body a break from the food and heavy movement there great now the last thing i wanted to discuss which is probably a topic for an entire another episode the endocannabinoid system you are also incorporate that in your coaching and so this is not just about cannabis 
that we have these receptors that can respond to THC or CBD in cannabis, but it's, it's not just about that. And I don't really have, probably don't have time to talk about the full system, but so how can people use this to our advantage? This is a huge untapped resource because you know, of the research, it's still probably not able to be done because of governmental regulations. But I guess my question is, why do some people, why does cannabis work for a lot of people and it doesn't seem to work for others? Yeah, absolutely. So the endocannabinoid system in the body is really describing these these sets of receptors that respond to both THC and CBD and other cannabinoids in the cannabis plant, but also our body's own cannabinoids that we make. And so we have these regulatory chemicals that are shaped very similarly to the the cannabinoids from those plants, but our body makes them naturally. And what research has shown is that they're very, very important in kind of modulating and shifting a whole bunch of different systems in the in the body. Cannabinoid receptors have been found on every single cell in the human body. And this is something that has only been really understood since the late late 80s that they're this ubiquitous in the body and we're going to see I think in the next 20 to 50 years this become a major major element of medicine. There's so much interest in it right now because it's essentially we've discovered a whole nother system in the body that we didn't realize was impacting all of these other systems. And the amazing thing about cannabinoid receptors is that they can actually form what they call dimers or these combination receptors with most of the other receptors in the body. So they can actually form these combinations with serotonin receptors and dopamine receptors and opioid receptors. And the cannabinoids in our body or ones we put in in can impact all these other systems. It's pretty profound how it can impact things. But one of the big things is stress response. They found that the levels of our own endocannabinoids can really impact the way we respond to a stressful event. It can really impact the likelihood for someone to develop PTSD after a traumatic event. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why some people feel really relaxed when they consume cannabis and, and some people don't. And this is called the endocannabinoid balance uh, uh, hypothesis, where uh, there's these certain enzymes that you can actually look at with genetics to to get a feel for if someone is going to have lower or higher amounts of their own endocannabinoids. And as a, you know, this is a generalization, but for, you know, they found these trends where people with lower amounts of their own endocannabinoids do better with cannabis. They're the ones that tend to feel relaxed and actually get some balancing effect from it. And then people that already have higher amounts of their own endocannabinoids, when you add more cannabinoids, say from cannabis into the system, it actually throws things off. And that's when, you know, people can feel anxious and paranoid. And then there's a number of other genetic variants that have been identified that can influence that too, especially in terms of how you break down THC because some people are slow metabolizers where they can you know, take one puff of a joint and someone else, the same amount of someone else, and they feel it extremely strongly because they just don't break down the THC as fully. It hangs around their system longer. So it's a pretty complex dance of all of these different factors, but it's one I'm, I'm super interested in. I've actually put together a genetic test, kind of mined the research, figured out what all these different variants do. If someone, you know, anyone that's listening is interested in that, I can help them figure out uh, the way that their endocannabinoid system is wired and really help people understand what's going to be the healthiest way uh, to use cannabis, if at all. And 
potentially look at reasons why they respond in a certain way and you know look at some strategies to modulate the system maybe without cannabis because there's there's other compounds like black pepper and maca and some other terpenes that can kind of impact that system as well. That's really interesting. So yeah, that's my next question. How can people work with you? So you have, for all of these things that we've discussed, you have tests that you've developed or that you've been trained in to do. And and so how does that work? Yeah. So it works uh, with a simple cheek swab test. I'm affiliated with a company called Apiron, which we're really heavily focused on human performance and kind of optimal health. And we use genetics as a basis to help people understand, okay, what are what are they going to be the best things that you can do and the most efficient ways to get there? And so it starts with our own genetic test that we've put together. It's a cheek swab test you do at home, pop it off in the mail. And then depending on what areas of health you want to look at, you know, I can look at nutrition, different micronutrients, detoxification, antioxidants, exercise genomics, sleep genomics, and uh, endocannabinoid genomics as well. You meet and go over it. And I I do ongoing coaching with people as well. So if you're someone that feels like, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to really see what I can I can do in six months or a year and, and really can imagine yourself getting on a routine that is really matched for your DNA and have someone to help kind of guide you through the process, then I can I can work with you like that too. But the easiest way for people to get a hold of me is my website at david-crantz, K-R-A-N-T-Z.com. And uh, you can read a little bit more about services I offer and book a free consultation, do free 20, 30 minute consultations for anyone who's interested to see if we're a good fit. Yeah, that's how people can get in contact. Nice. And now for coaches, say there's a coach that they want to move their practice in this way. What, what, what would a coach do? Say they're, they're a certified health coach and they're interested in helping people with their nutrigenomics, for example. Yes, I would suggest that they look into the Apiron training. It's created by a doctor named Dan Stickler, who, I mean, he's one of the clinical experts on this. He's a lecturer at Stanford. He's a medical director for Neurohacker Collective. He's put together, as far as I have been able to find, the most comprehensive course on this stuff. And it's a really pretty holistic approach to using this stuff in clinical practice. So for any coaches that are interested in it, I'd suggest looking into that. And their website, it's, I think I have it, it's A-P-E-I-R-O-N, center.com? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you type that, okay. yeah, if you, yeah, if okay. you type in Appear on Center or Appear on Genomics, that'll, that'll come up. Okay, great. Thank you very much for your time on this podcast. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off? I think that the... You know, the nutrition and the genetics and, and health is, is one piece of living, you know, a, a really incredible life, but it's really about what you're doing with your health when you have it and what you're doing with increased energy and focus and, you know, ability to wake up refreshed in the morning that working with your genetics can give you. For me, it's really more about working with people that are interested in having a larger vision of what they're doing with their time and their good health. And so I really love supporting people that are kind of on that creative path to to, you know, helping others or, or really seeing a vision come into the world. So my challenge, I suppose, would be to really kind of get in touch with what it is that drives you and, and really what, what it is that moves you forward. Let that kind of be the beacon that draws you towards um, your motivation for better health. And it's really fun when those things start to kind of feed back on onto each other. I love it. That's That's a great ending statement. So thank you very much, David, for coming on the show. And people can get in touch with you at David Krantz, K-R-A-N-T-Z 
david-krantz.com. Mm-hmm. David-krantz. There's a little dash in there. David. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So david-krantz, K-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for having me on, Don. It was a pleasure talking with you. It was a pleasure talking to you as well. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Susan, you remember the time we were in Orange County? We were driving around and we got lost. And we ran into this place called Avila's El Ranchito. You remember the place? The place had awesome decor and authentic margaritas. Did you know that Avila's El Ranchito has been around since 1966? They have 13 locations throughout Orange County. Visit Salvador Avila's location in Lake Forest and Foothill Ranch for great food, ambiance, and specialty margaritas. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Teaspoon of Healing. If you have any questions for me or my guest, visit my website, teaspoonofhealing.com. Click on contact and I will get back to you. You can also find me on Instagram at teaspoonofhealing. That's where I'm the most active. And I do have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash teaspoonofhealing. And feel free to make any requests about show topics you'd like to hear, let me know. And if you don't currently subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, please do so, and then you won't miss a single episode. Thank you for listening to A Teaspoon of Healing with Dawn Damari, your home for wellness and vibrant living. For more resources on wellness and vibrant living, visit us online at teaspoonofhealing.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please consult a physician or other health professional before undertaking changes in lifestyle or wellness habits. The author claims no responsibility to any person or entity for any liability, loss, or damage caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of use, application, or interpretation of the information presented herein.